Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 7. And I wanted to read verses 14 through 23. Today we're going to talk about our core problem when it comes to changing as a person. We have to change from inside out. And we kind of really need to know what we're up against and what we're really dealing with and how change, let's say, depth change occurs in us. Uh, you can change on the surface fairly easily, which is why a legal, legalist loves the law because they can write it out in a way they can keep it. But when you truly understand what God requires, Hopefully after today's sermon you will see that you need far more uh, spiritual help than just doing something outwardly. Hear now the word of the Lord. In context, he's talking about the traditions of the Pharisees. Verse 13 says, uh, Thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. And when he had entered the house and left, the people, his disciples, asked about that parable. And he said to them, then you are also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would help us see uh, exactly what the nature of our problem is because we have a big one and we know that to experience transformation to be changed from one degree to another by your spirit we need to understand a little bit of the dynamics of our heart and how we are hardwired and what we were made to be and what we struggle now and what what the battlefield looks like that we're in, engaged in and uh, how much we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray you would make that clear in your gracious ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one question you often hear, if you listen closely, is, what is wrong with us as human beings? People define the core problem and therefore seek to bring about change in different ways. But if our diagnosis is faulty, our prescription will be faulty as well. 
In other words, what's wrong with us? Why are things not the way they're supposed to be outside of me, but why are things not the way they're supposed to be inside of me? And what does it mean to grasp that and understand that? And if our diagnosis is shallow and faulty, then whatever prescription we try will be to no avail. According to the Bible, our core problem is that we are in purposeful rebellion against God. And the spiritual battle is waged in our hearts before it ever happens in our actions. Our problem is a heart problem. And at the level of our motivations, we would rather serve ourselves rather than God. And according to Romans chapter 1, our chief problem is not that our needs are unmet, but that we have wickedly turned away from God in our hearts. We have been unwilling to glorify God. We have rejected his lordship over us. However, being fundamentally religious creatures who are built to worship, we must worship something. So we erect objects of worship. We ultimately become enslaved to these things and they wreak havoc in our lives. Another way of putting all of this is that our core problem is idolatry. Now I know you're sitting there thinking going well we're studying the Tim Keller book on the gospel hope in our, our, our Bible study groups and so we've heard enough about idolatry please no more. I don't think I can take another word about it. Well, you're going to hear it in a little different slant today than maybe what you saw in the book. It'll be similar but not identical. But it's never, ever wrong for us to be exposed to this problem. We are masters, we are idol factories, Calvin said, of developing God substitutes and we give ourselves willingly over to the worship of them. And that central uh, rebellion in our hearts leads to all the emotional, mental, behavioral problems which we experience. In other words, we're messed up. And we're messed up because we worship the wrong God. And or gods. And as a result of that, we see the consequences. And so the process to bring about change in anybody's life is to learn to turn away from idolatries and turn to belief in the gospel. And this repentance and faith discipline is an ongoing process that continues throughout the Christian life. But before I jump to point two and three, we're only going to do point one today. I want us to talk a little bit more about the battlefield for change, which is our core problem, which is a problem of the heart. And a problem of the heart wanting what it wants. And because of the nature of sin in our lives and the power of residual remaining indwelling sin in our lives, often our hearts wander uh, away from the Lord and attach themselves to other gods. Sometimes we're aware of it, sometimes we're totally blind to it, which is another reason why we need community as a Christian believer. We don't need to be isolated from other believers because then we'll never be exposed. But being with other believers has a way of exposing 
our idols. And so let's talk about them just for a moment. You remember in the book of Exodus, as I read to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't make an idol because, essentially, I am a jealous God. Now, years ago, there was a big headline in the papers about a woman named Patty Hearst. She was kidnapped by the Sibianese Liberation Army. You help me there? Yeah, whatever, that one. (laughs) Thank you. I'm not going to try it again. I had it fine this morning. I don't know what happened. Next thing you know, she joined her captors. Her name became Tanya. And the bank cameras took pictures of her showing that she had joined the army. She became a co-conspirator in her own kidnapping. Psychologists explained it this way. Abused people identify with their abusers. Because there's a capacity in the human heart to lock on to the greatest power centers in your life and to identify with them and to seek to become like them, thinking that you'll get power yourself from them. But it leads to a slavery. The irony is that once she decided to get power over her rescues by joining them, it became hard to rescue her from the violent people. But in order to get power, thinking she would get it, she lost her power. We're talking this morning, when we talk about the problem of idolatry, is we're talking about the supremacy of God. God is to be the supreme authority in your life. He cannot be one God among many. He has ascendancy. He has preeminence. And we'll also learn something about the human heart today. Uh, We all have a capacity of heart to locate the most powerful centers in our hearts and to latch on to them so that we, in search of power, can have life. But God says when we make anything else than the true God of the universe the center of our being, we end up every single time enslaved. We end up enslaved. The thesis of the Bible is to lift up the, the true God before everyone's eyes so that you can see the idols in your own life and the loss of freedom that comes from serving them and you can reject them and turn to the true God. And in reality, that is a narrative truth that sort of holds the Bible together. Uh, I am fascinated, I am overwhelmed by how often the Bible does talk about Idolatry, And so today what I want to do quickly is talk about three things. You know I love to talk about three things because I'm Trinitarian in my thinking. And these three things are why we need to make idols. Why do we need to do that? Why is there just such a necessity in everybody's heart to worship something or someone? Why do we need to make idols? Secondly, what is the dynamic of idolatry? What does it look like in our lives? How does it... Uh, develop in our hearts. And so we're going to look at dynamics as well. And then thirdly, we're going to see how we can destroy idols and get free of them and live in spiritual freedom. And so first, why do we need to make idols? And the reason we need to make idols is because of the way we were created. We, that is creatures, 
male and female, are the image of God. God made us in his likeness and in his image, and he created us that way, and that means a lot. That means that we find ourselves related to God in a very unique way. We are made to work, and I'm going to throw a word at you that you hear a lot in this church, we are made to work covenantally. We are made for a covenant. And a covenant is nothing more than a binding relationship with obligations and responsibilities that if fulfilled bring blessing and if rebelled against bring cursing. But we are at the core of our being made to work covenantally. We are built to be dependent. We are built to serve the Lord. God says it is not good for you to be alone. And so you are an image of the triune God. That means that we are all beings intended for relationship. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are beings in relationship with one another, interacting at every moment. And so as a result of that, our imaging of God has to do with us being in a relationship. We are built to be dependent. We are built not to be alone. Now, some of you may not like it, but the Bible says you are built for somebody. And God comes to us and says to us, I will be your God. I am promising you that if you enter into a relationship with me, I will be your God. That is, I will be the supreme one. I will be the master. I will be the Lord of your life. I will be the one who rules and reigns over you. I will be the one you are accountable to and responsible to you. And what that also means is that God has our back. He has promised to enter into a relationship with us where he will protect us. He will provide for us. He will be with us. He will be in us. He will be for us. And we are to be his people. That is, we find our life, our meaning, our purpose, the whole of our raison d'etre, the whole reason we live, move, and have our being is to be in relationship with him. And what messes up people is not understanding that. We're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. We do not understand the way we were made. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that the uh, enemy of our souls has done more to try to destroy the opening chapters of Genesis than anything else, as well as the last two chapters of Revelation. But what he's attempted to do uh, is exactly what he did to the first pair in the garden, Adam and Eve. The nature of sin is that we turn to other gods besides the God who is the uh, supreme one. It is to worship other things. You see, sin is something far more profound than breaking rules or breaking laws. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, the reason why we break commandments 2 through 10 is because we break commandment number 1 first. Sin is essentially, first, breaking a relationship. It is turning our back on God. It is living independently of him. It's trying to construct an identity apart from him. 
And so when Satan came to the uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, he was very subtle and very shifty and very experienced and very wise and sage and seasoned in wickedness. And so he goes to them and he questions them by saying, is God really for you? Uh, is God's word really true? And, and, and his implication was, God is limiting you from finding true freedom and true life, and, and he's, he's lying to you. He, he got them to doubt the veracity and truth of God's word. And so what he essentially said is God's holding back on you. He doesn't want you to be actualized as a person. He doesn't want you to reach your full potential. And so he has his thumb on you. He's ruling over you. And so Satan showed the woman the fruit that was desirable, and she partook of it and gave some to her husband, and he ate it. What'd they do? They believed the lie, and that is the ultimate lie. And the ultimate lie is you can experience life and freedom and joy and peace and hope apart from a relationship with God. You don't need him. You were made to be independent. You were made to live for yourself. You were made to make your own decisions. You don't have to answer to him. But the Bible says that everyone in this room, more deeply than anything else, has to live for something and covenantally love something. To think of a covenant, think of a marriage situation. And let's say I'm conducting a marriage today and the bride comes down the aisle and here's the groom and we talk about marriage and then we enter into the vows that the couple takes in the presence of God. They vow to each other to do certain things together in order for the marriage to flourish and have harmony and peace and happiness. And so while it is a love relationship, while they are drawn together, there are responsibilities and obligations in marriage. By the way, you can't have a marriage without working hard at it. It's a lot of work to love another person well. Uh, a lot of dying to do. Uh, a lot of struggle. But the issue is true. The Bible says that everyone in this room, more deeply than anything else, has to live for something and has to covenantally love something because we're made in his image. And so the need beneath every one of our needs is a need for a relationship with the God who made us in his image. Because you are in his image, your life will be utter frustration, utter hopelessness, utter meaninglessness until you learn you're to be in relationship with him. That's why it's so frustrating outside of Christ. That's why it's so frustrating uh, living in the darkness. Um, every one of us is hardwired for God. And a lot of our bitterness and a lot of our anger in life is because someone or something has gotten in the way of what we think we have to have. We absolutely have to have this. And so the Bible teaches that everyone worships something else besides God. All of us use that capacity to worship and to enter into covenant with other things, hoping that they will give us the power and control we seek apart from God. And so an idolater is nothing more or less than a person who's looking to control and have power or approval or success or comfort in life or status. That's what an idolater is. And so we all struggle with that. 
We all participate in that. We use that capacity. And so all of our misery, all of the brokenness in our lives is a result of the worship of something else. We resemble what we revere. We become what we worship. And so we're seeking in life all the blessings of God from gods who can't deliver. One of the reasons idolatry is so frustrating is it promises you everything. And if you get what it promises or you get what it says and promises you, it'll never give it to you. And secondly, if you don't get it, you're absolutely devastated. And so that's the human condition. And so what are the dynamics of idolatry? We're at point two in case you're wondering if this is ever going to end. What it means to make an idol. And the first motive is, I have an idol in my life because it will help me keep control. Original sin was to think that if we give God supremacy, we will miss out on life. God is out to stifle us. He's out to limit us. And so uh, the serpent's logic is nothing more than a lie. If we believe that if we live for anything else, we will be better off than if we live for God. That tells us what can and cannot do, uh, what we can't, uh, God that tells us what we can and cannot do is uh, the lie of the devil. Um, God tells us clearly what we are to do. And so there is a necessity for idolatry in our lives because nature pours a back vacuum. And so, uh, for example, I have a drive in my life called hunger. And uh, that hunger causes me to gobble up food. Now, that's kind of crude, but sometimes that happens. Okay, but if I can't find food, I will eventually gobble up something that will poison me and probably kill me. And we have a capacity within us, a desire just like hunger, just like thirst, that's going to worship. And if you don't give it the right thing, it'll gobble us up. We are not independent. If we live for power, it will control us. If we live for approval, it will control us. Whatever you live for controls you. You do not control yourself. You are controlled by the Lord of your life, and you have to worship something. And the delusion of idolatry is we exchange the truth of God for a lie. An idol is a good thing, that we create an emotional and cognitive field around and we deify it. An idol could be a good thing, a person, a pursuit that has gained ascendancy in our hearts and we blow it up way out of proportion. It is a life dream that is really not there. And so We've seen the motive of idolatry. We've seen that there is a necessity for worship. We see the delusion of idolatry, that it is sad, and you can see it in people. Look at people who have idealized a career or an endeavor or marriage itself or a person in their life, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But idolatry is to idealize this and crave something that is not real. Everybody takes a life dream that's not really there. Fourthly, 
the salvation nature of idolatry. Isaiah 44 says this, they take the idols and make them with their hands and bow down to it and say, save me. Let me revolutionize your thinking here for a moment. We originally were created in the image of God and God entered into a relationship with Adam and Eve called the covenant of works. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Well, guess what? We are such covenantal creatures that if we don't enter into covenant with the real God, we enter into covenant with our idols. And our idols become to us what Jesus should be. And they can be good things. They can be wholesome things. They can be wonderful things, but we blow them out of proportion. We elevate them. We fill them full thinking they're going to save us, and they can't save us. They can't deliver us. They'll only disappoint us. They'll only crush us. They'll only lead us to utter despair. But that's the nature of idolatry. Um, and so... You know, you're, you're sitting there. Some of you are sitting there looking at me like this. I don't get it. Pastor, I'm not getting this. I've always gone to church. I've always worshipped God. What are you talking about? Now you're telling me, Pastor Tim, that I have an idol problem? Some of you are saying you don't get it because you're not religious at all. You say that you've come here today not really sure what this is all about. But you just told me I worship idols. But I'm not a religious person at all. You're thinking about uh, going into a religious institution and bowing down to an altar, but you're going to have to open your mind. An idol is anything you turn to and say, save me, deliver me. And the power of an idol is not seen, not so much in how good you feel when you get it, but how devastated you are when you don't. Harold Abrams of Chariots of fire the day before the race in the Olympics said this he said um, I got 10 seconds to justify my existence I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence you see idolatry is the way we try to justify ourselves without turning to Christ we try to justify ourselves by works and what are the works? Our covenant with idols. We enter into a covenantal relationship with them. And we long for them to save them. Harold Abrams said, I've been living for this. And if I don't succeed at this, I'm lost. You know, a model might say it this way. All I have my, is my looks. And if I lost that, I'd have nothing. The Bible is saying that everyone has something that they look to and say, unless I have this, I am not justified. If I don't achieve this, if I don't realize this, if I don't get this, if I don't live up to it, this, then there's no need to go on. Life is meaningless, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. To get a little literary on it. Everyone has one of these things in their lives, at least one. And do you know what they are? There's nothing more fundamental than this. An idol is anything you add to God as a requirement for being happy. 
The great irony is when people get mad at God, what it is saying is that one of your idols isn't coming through for you. What you've built your life on, you can't get. And so you can almost see God saying, you're not miserable because of me, you're miserable because of you. You're miserable because you have built your life on something that cannot deliver what you were hoping for. You're mad at me because I haven't made you more successful in your idolatry. Beloved, foolish child, let me deliver you from this. There's always a slavery aspect to idolatry. God says, unless I am the Lord your God, you shall never be out of slavery. If you enter into idolatry, you always do so covenantally. And because you're a covenantal being, you make commitments, you enter into contracts. It's subtle, it's profound, perhaps a hidden process. But the Bible says you make covenants with idols. And if I give myself to you, Mr. Idol, you will then bless me and make me feel like a worthwhile person, justified in my existence. And therefore, idols have amazing power over us. In the Roman passage, it says God gave them up to their desires. What in the world does that mean? It means that normal and good desires take us over. They become inordinate desires, over-desires. It means that it is all right, let's say, you're a single person and you want to be married. But when you say, I must be married, or like Jonah said, I'm angry enough to die. Then you have been given over. You're enslaved to idolatry. It's one thing to want friendship. It's another thing to say, I have to have friends or my life is nothing. It's one thing to want approval. It's another thing to say, I have to have it. I've got to. An idol is a covenant with you when it has the power to bless you or curse you depending on whether or not you are serving it. And when we fail to perform and we start to feel that we're worthless and that the idol is cursing us saying, you haven't lived up to my standard. You see, you can be an unbeliever. You can be an idolater and still be an illegalist with your <laughs> idol. You're entering into a contract with that idol. And you're saying, Mr. Idol, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Now make me beautiful. Make me wonderful. Make people bow down and notice and worship me. But the idol has no power to do that because we make them out of our own desires. And they only have power to condemn us is really the only power I have. And so when we fail to perform, we start to feel worthless. We made a bargain with an idol, and we said, if I am this and this and this, then I will feel worthy. I will feel great. The Bible tells us in the book of Kings, because they worshipped worthless idols, they themselves became worthless. Because an idol is not really God. You will never feel that you're worth anything. It is so natural growing up and dreaming of meeting the person of your dreams. But don't sell your soul to it. Don't make a pact with it. What happens is when someone doesn't pick you up and carry you away, or worse yet, somebody does, and you find that they don't satisfy like you thought they would, you go crazy. Because when you worship an idol that is worthless, you become worthless. It is so natural to hold a child in your hands and create that same delusional field around that baby. 
At the worst, you fail as a parent and hate yourself for it. At best, you succeed as a parent and you sing that most despairing of songs. Is this all there is? They never call me anymore. They don't want to see me. You can't blow up anything. Nothing can save you but Jesus. Nothing else can. Nothing else has the capacity to. Being a, I mean, I'm all for being a good godly parent, but it won't save you or your children. And I'm all for being a good godly husband, but marriage won't save you. Only Jesus can. And so we tend to do that. So what are the forms idols take? What does it look like in flesh and blood in real life? Well, they're everywhere. There's zillions of idols. Some are easy to see, like the workaholic who says, unless I am productive, I am worthless. Unless I'm productive, I'm worthless. Codependent relationships can be viewed in terms of idolatry. What is a codependent relationship? It is interlocking idolatry with enormously hard-to-break feedback loops in them. Let me explain further. Some people say nobody will love me unless I'm messed up. Others say I won't be lovable unless I'm rescuing people from their problems. That's a marriage made in hell. That's what that is. Others say, I won't be lovable unless I'm rescuing people from their problems. They both have idols so that even when a person is rescuing, he's rescuing himself, really, not you. You're using each other to save yourselves. Eating disorders. I will have no worth unless I have control over everything in my life. Fatal attractions are the same way. She makes me feel like a man. Don't you love that? She makes me feel like a man. I mean, you're ripping people apart. You're destroying everything that you think you're supposed to love. But she makes me feel like a man. Translation, she saves me. She'll be able to deliver whatever you ask of her. One of you will kill the other. Some of you might say, well, I don't struggle with any of that. Then you know what your idol is? The fact that you're so in charge of your life that you're not ruffled by anything. I've had that one. <laughs> You're a slave to anything that says, I've got to have it. You see, if you're not ruffled by anything, if you don't give yourself to anything, you give yourself to that, people complain about how detached you are in relationships. You're a slave to anything that says, I have to have it. Sometimes whole communities have idols. For example, what about the city of Las Vegas? The gambling mecca of the world. Chance is the idol of the culture. There was a man being interviewed about a TV station that he ran. He said, yeah, I, I wouldn't want my children to see what comes across this station. But, you know, business is business. You ever heard anybody say that? Business is business. Like that's the end of the discussion. But when you say that, you are saying that business is Lord. Do you know what it's like to be in a community where beauty is Lord? Do you know what it's like to be in a community where intellectual inness is Lord? Do you know what it's like to be in a community where fascism or socialism or communism is Lord? Fascism is idolatry that says the superiority of my blood and race is Lord. Communism, socialism is that the state is Lord. Any culture, family, heart, uh, neighborhood uh, can be idolatry. H.G. Wells 
said this. He believed in the perfectibility and innate goodness of the human heart. In 1920, when uh, you read his history, he says that a golden age is ahead. We're going to have a golden age through science and technology. Those were the garments of the new priesthood. By the 30s, he was so upset with politicians, he wanted to get rid of them so that the intellectuals could take over. He realized that politicians were sinners. What are we going to do about them, he said. By 1945, he wrote a book called The Mind at the End of Its Tether. He says, Homo sapiens is finished. It's over. Here's a man who made the goodness of humanity God, and if you do that to anything, you'll find your mind soon at the end of its tether. So how do we deal with this? How do we destroy idols in our lives? Because they're destroying us. And the answer is, you'll have to find us next week and we'll tell you. No, um, <laughs> the only way to freedom is you've got to settle the issue. Either you are an idolater or you are a believer. An idolater says, I want to create a God that pleases me. A believer says, I want God to create in me someone that pleases him. An idolater says, I want to make God in my image. A believer says, I want God to make me into his image. An idolater says, I can't believe that God would do this or that, which means I can't believe that God is not supporting my idolatrous agenda in my life. But a believer says, I've got a real God who I'm not shaping, but who I'm allowing to mold and shape me. The problem is still the problem. Do you have a real God under whose control you presently are? Do you have a God who is wiser than you? Who springs Peter out of prison but leaves John the Baptist to be beheaded? Because he is wiser than we are, he's sovereign, he's real, he doesn't always do what you want him to do. Have you settled the issue that God has to be God and you cannot be? You have to let God be God, and until you do this, you will never be able to destroy idols. And so you have to make sure to look at the idolatries underneath your problems. You have to go down underneath. That's why people like Keller and David Pallison and Thomas Oden, the structure of uh, uh, idolatry, all write that the sin underneath all of our sins that you see is idolatry. Idolatry, in, in one uh, way of looking at it is our desire to be God but we're not qualified for that job we're not made for that job we can't do that job but that's what we want and so the reason that life is about to collapse is because something we have built our life upon is threatened and it's not big enough to hold you panic attacks what are those things that you hold on to which say, God, unless you give me those things, I will not go on? Now, I'm going to tell you something. Let me confess something to you. I've had two panic attacks in life. Had one here and one in Louisiana. And guess why? I made a God out of the church and church planting. I cared more about that than I did people 
than I did my family. And I didn't know I was doing it. I thought I was serving God. I thought I was straight up and honest. But the reality is, as I look back on it, and as I diagnose with Scripture, I now see that I wanted to be a success, and I was willing to pay anything to be a success. See, you can have gods in ministry. Talk about wanting a good thing. I wanted a good thing, but I wanted it in an inordinate way. I can remember being here in 1991-2 after I had planted this church, and I was invited over to a friend's house to sit in a hot tub with three or four other guys and just relax and enjoy. So I stepped down in the hot tub. They're already there. As I sit down, all four of them look at me and say at once, Do not mention the church. Do not talk about being a pastor. Stop it. We love you. Stop it. <laughs> so one morning I got up. I'm taking a shower. It's a Sunday morning. And so I called a friend of mine and said, Can you preach for me today? He said, Why? I said, I can't be there. And so my wife is still in bed, and I walk out of the shower, and I walk over and say, I'm going to the emergency room. I think I'm having a heart attack. You go on and take the kids to go to church, and I'll see you later. <laughs> so I went to Desert Springs Hospital. They ran all the tests. You know, they said, well, maybe it's gas. We don't know what it is, but you're healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. Are you under a lot of stress? And I went, yeah. <laughs> Same thing happened in Louisiana. I did eat some spicy Mexican food and found out ultimately it might have been acid reflux, but I had the same shutdown. My body shut down. Why? Because I was so driven. You think I'm driven now? I am mellow <laughs> compared to what I was then. Why? Because I'm competitive. I have to win. But God had to deliver me from idols. So you can have idols anywhere about anything. I would think one that I'm thinking about all the time is the wonderful American dream of retirement. How easily that could become an idol to me. You know? Or there are a million others. As I said, there's zillions of them. But in order to be a Christian, I'll talk more about this next week. I'll talk about exactly what we have to do to our idols. But you wouldn't think ministry could be an idol, but it can be. When it's going well, you're a delight to be with. When it's struggling, hell hath no fury. So, you have to name them yourself. That is what your idols are. You have to make a business of preaching the gospel to yourself. We'll talk about that more next week. You have to recognize that God is jealous. And you know why he's jealous? He's jealous because he is love. And when you rally in love with someone or when you're really in love with someone, you can't stand to see them in the arms of anyone else. Why? Because you love them. You'll never understand the jealousy of God unless you see that his love is covenantal. He is completely committed in all his being to make us his and to make us like his son. John Donne put it this way, Batter my heart, three-personed God, that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break and bend and make me new. 
I struggle to give you the supremacy in my life. I want you to do anything to get it. Dunn said, Dearly, I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed to your enemy. Divorce me and untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, Lord. Imprison me, for except you enthrall me, never shall I be free. Never shall I be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, word this morning. We thank you for your word regarding idolatry. Our core problem is a heart problem. And our heart problem is we want other gods more than we want you. And we're ashamed to say that. Some of us don't see it yet. We, we think, no, Pastor Tim, I'm not going there. You're getting too introspective on me. You're an idol hunt waiting to happen. Lord, show us. Show us. Show us. Show us what we really worship and what we really love for, live for and love for. Now, Father, we thank you for the grace that is in Jesus Christ, that you're always willing to take us back into your arms and cover us with kisses. And we pray that as we continue to worship, we would give as people whose hearts belong to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.